Welcome to Access Ideas, where we share insights and perspectives that spark curiosity, conversation, and inspiration. I'm Yana, and today I'm sharing my conversation with Angela Hollowell. Angela is a documentary filmmaker, photographer, and video podcaster, creating films about social impact and interview series about creative entrepreneurship. She is also the host of the Honey and Hustle podcast, where she interviews founders in North Carolina and explores sustainable business practices. More recently, Angela has become the visionary behind Creative Architects, a podcast that features guests building the future of the creator economy. We discuss the evolution of AI-assisted tools for creators and the impact it has on their work. Angela shares her thoughts on the importance of editing and packaging content for different platforms, as well as the future of live recordings and the role of set design in video podcasts. Angela's unique perspective and passion for helping creators succeed shines through in her work. By sharing insights, stories, and experiences, she provides valuable knowledge to anyone interested in pursuing their creative dreams. Get ready to be inspired as we dive into an exploration of creativity, technology, and community. And with that, I bring you Angela Hollowell. Welcome to Access Ideas, Angela. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great, thanks. It's fantastic to have you on the show. You are the vision behind Creative Architects, which is what we're going to talk about today. Maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. What is Creative Architects? So Creative Architects is an original show that I'm working on in collaboration with Castos. And it's a show about the creators that I, I guess, consider to be building the future of the creator economy. And by that, I mean, like, not necessarily the trendy things that are happening, but really what are some of the evergreen things about us as people, as humans, as creators that are going to continue to be true for a long, long time? And what I feel like is going to be true is that there are going to continue to be creative communities um, and people thrive in community. I think it's so lonely being a solo creator and you learn so much more from other people and by experiencing life and creativity with other people. Um, creative educators, I think the amount of things we learn about ourselves as creators, whether you're a writer, a designer, a podcaster, a filmmaker, a photographer, you learn so much by learning from other people who have been there and who have done that. And so I think that's a really important element that we're going to continue to grow. I mean, being like a lifelong learner and what does learning look like and what is it going to continue to look like in the future? And then last but not least, technology. I think we're in an age where we can't ignore that technological advances and software and programs that are helping us create better, create faster, create more efficiently are going to continue to progress and, and grow along with us. So I'm really excited to explore community education and tech on the show. Great, great. And one of the things that I liked a lot about your vision as you've presented it on different platforms is how you see creativity evolving. I think you're one of the few podcasters that I've listened to who has a really solid grasp on the org- like how to organize tools, how to understand the tools that are out there, how to organize some of the access to communities and what uh, paid access versus free access might mean. But I'm really curious to get to some points about how you came to this vision because you have learned a lot 
to actually doing. Um, it's not it's not abstract. It's not purely theoretical for you. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to where you are today in terms of your experience with the Honey and Hustle podcast and, and what makes you so passionate about community? Um, well, I started Honey and Hustle, which is my first podcast um, in March of 2020. It was a pandemic podcast. I knew absolutely nothing about producing a show, okay? Like, I knew how to turn a camera on. I was good at that part. Nice. Um, I knew how to make a pretty scene. Um, but, I mean, I just remember stumbling over my words so much. I remember just getting stuck in the middle of an interview. Like, I'd be listening so intently, I would forget my questions. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, just all the things that make for a terrible interview. <laughs> right? um, but I, I learned, and I, and I grew, and it took me a minute to kind of find other podcasters, especially video podcasters, to learn from and to uh, gain more insights about their techniques to conducting a really great interview and asking really great questions and then packaging that in a way that people want to listen to that. And and I'm still learning to this day. And so I feel like a lot of that experience has um, presented some crossover here in Creative Architects, where now I'm having the opportunity to work with an already established team and create something completely from scratch. And so I can apply all the things that I learned from the first show to make the second show even better. So hopefully, theoretically, we have less, you know, stumbling blocks and it's a little more coherent, it's a little more consistent. And um, the packaging is just spot on. And I think um, a lot of that has, has come to fruition um, with uh, my collaboration with Castos. And I'm really excited to see where that grows. Um, and to answer the question about like my learning experience, I haven't paid to be a part of a community or a learning experience for podcasting, but I have paid uh, for a course from a wedding photographer. And that just taught me a lot about running a business. And I think a lot of the things that I learned from that still carry over today and how I think about finances, how I think about marketing, and how I think about branding myself now as a podcaster and across all these different projects that I'm working on. What do you think you learned since 2020 about branding yourself, what would be the number one lesson or even the number, the three top things you've learned? Uh, some of the most important things I've learned, definitely that branding and marketing is not like this thing that you do when you need money or when you need clients or when you need insert blank thing here. I saw the trend in myself that I would only market when I was like having a lull in clients or customers. And it's just like, that's just not how that works because then once you finish with a client, it was like it would start this cycle all over again rather than me having like a consistent um, top of funnel, if you will, of people coming in and learning about me and learning about who I am and being interested in what I do. Um, the other half of that, I think, in 2020 was just this huge societal awakening here in America about the importance of owning who you are and really being upfront about the things that you value as a person and as a business owner. And um, I really started to step behind the curtain and come to the forefront of, of my brands and my businesses at that point, because I saw that people connect with people at the end of the day. And I wanted to find a way that felt authentic to me to let people know more about who I was and what was important to me and why I do the work that I do, why I create what I create. And um, that has just been such an incredible thing for me. I think it's very scary and can be very daunting as an introvert and as someone who does not like to argue on the internet. <laughs> um, but I, I think that it's been way more rewarding. Like the positives have 
greatly outweighed the negative comments that I get mm-hmm. from time to time. I mean, honestly. Just on a side note, have you gotten any better at arguing on the internet? Because I'm still working on that and I'm not great at it. <laughs> Every blue moon, someone will say something that is just factually incorrect. And like, as much as I don't want to argue, I will tell them that they are wrong. <laughs> Sometimes facts are facts, right? (laughs) Not alternative facts, just facts. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I think, though, too, what you said about people want to connect with people is fundamental to any great podcast. This is an audio podcast, and I love what you've done with your podcast on YouTube, and we're going to go into that a little bit later. But I think fundamentally what we want is to connect, and we want to hear others connecting in a meaningful way. And sometimes it's a profound moment where people have a breakthrough and they they change their mind about their beliefs. But often it's it's really just warmth. It's about recognizing the other person and seeing their humanity, or it's about seeing their value that they're bringing into the world. And with creators, this is such an important part of what we do. And you know this, you're a creator, it's no mystery. But I think the loneliness and isolation of being a solo creator can sometimes diminish that light that we have or make us feel like nobody's listening or what I have maybe isn't that important. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about creative architects in terms of shaping the future of the creator economy, maybe breaking down some of those barriers, some of those walls that are keeping creators feeling alone or isolated. Maybe to start out with, Can you talk a little bit about where you see the creator economy moving toward and some of the positives? What are the opportunities, really, that creators can look to? So I think one of the greatest things that we're seeing across community and even tech companies as well as consolidation, mm, right? Interesting. Um, just just a sec, because that word isn't necessarily something that people would think of as a positive. Mm. So so let's let's hear more about why that's a positive. Yeah. And I'll use the example of technically a non-creative tech company, which is Peloton and Lululemon. And Lululemon and Peloton entered a five-year agreement where they would cross-promote Lululemon and Peloton co-branded apparel on um, one of their apps. And I think it was because Peloton or Lululemon realized like people really aren't coming to us for workouts, really. They're coming to us because they love their apparel that allows them to work out better. Peloton was like, we're not really getting a lot of traction on the the merch side of things, but people love our apps. People love our, our workout gear and things like that. So like, how can we come together? And these are two companies that you would think would be competitors, right? Mm-hmm. But I think um, what we've seen is like, nobody has complained, right? None of their customers <laughs> have said, no, I don't want to be like associated with Peloton. Nobody says that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're getting something out of it that really meets their needs. And I think that the more that creators and tech companies can start to think about the fact that people want to get as many of their needs met in one place, that they're going to be spending their money. They want to get the most out of that money. And I think that comes across with sponsorships, that comes across with any kind of client work you're doing, that comes across with tech companies. When we think about why would I pay separately for a social media person and a filmmaker and a writer and an editor when I could just get one company that has all of those things, Mm -hmm. right? And I think there are so many more opportunities when creators come together and when tech companies start to see like what are the needs that people are asking for 
And if I'm not the best to create it, what companies are the best to create it? And how can we work together to provide that service? We saw that with Descript and Squadcast. And we're going to continue to see that as we go forward, I think, because the reality is everybody wins. Yeah. You know, when you have better options and more options. And with creators specifically talking about collaboration, it's so easy to see things as competition, right? Even if they're in a completely different niche, in a completely different area, there's this perceived um, scarcity in the market of like, well, only so many companies are going to pay for a social video. Only so many companies are going to pay for a documentary film or a docuseries. Only so many companies are going to pay for a commercial. And the reality is, one, that's just not true. Um, and number two, there are new companies coming up every day. You have no idea what their needs are and needs change. And so I'm really excited to see um, people come together more and see how we can create something better together versus create something better in spite of our ability to to see people in a more positive light. Mm-hmm. So. And you've mentioned that you have experience with quite a few creative tools and approaches. Who should listen to creative architects? Who would benefit from from listening to the podcast and what sort of topics do you like to discuss? I think the people that would benefit are people that are writers, podcasters, um, designers, photographers, filmmakers. That's kind of off the bat, right? Okay. But I also think about what level are they at in their career or creative journey, right? I think there are a lot of um, creators turned tech or SaaS business owners because through their experience, they've seen the problems firsthand and they're like, I can create a solution that not only helps me, but helps a lot of other people. I'd love to see that evolution. And I think people that are interested in maybe taking that leap and maybe finding another way to package their expertise and, and build a team, um, make that transition. I think they'd be great fits to listen to the show. There's been people like Jen Fan of, of Passion Fruit, uh, Rand Fishkin of SparkToro, who t- talk very extensively about their experience building products in that way. And then also the people who are like, okay, well, I've been a creator and I'm now realizing even with the team, there's only one me. There's only so much I can do in terms of being a service-based creator. How can I package my expertise and educate other people? And so making that transition from being a creator or a creator business owner to um, an educator and finding ways to, to think maybe a little bit differently about what it means for you to be a creator, I think those people would also be great fits. Mm-hmm. So anywhere from you know, early stage to even intermediate level creators would, would really greatly benefit from the show. Well, that's perfect. So if I'm a creator as I am, um, but putting myself in the shoes of other creators as well, what questions should I ask myself if I'm thinking about putting my knowledge and experience into a more educational package? What are some key questions we can ask ourselves? Um, how do I feel comfortable showing up? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think education could look a lot of different ways. Education could look like in-person workshops. It can look like um, a lot of speaking, keynote speaking. Um, But it can also look like you going through a presentation slide deck with your face in a little circle on the bottom left of the screen. Right. Um, So I think it can look a lot of different ways. But you have to be honest with yourself about like, where do I show up best? How do I show up best? And what is my style of learning? And how can I package that for people who have different learning styles? Right. Um, And maybe this is just my own imagination getting ahead of me. But I would love to see more creators making 
There are educational content available in different formats, so not just video, but also audio and maybe even a written PDF or something like that. So like, because people learn in different ways. So I I think that's one way to really think about like, how can I best contribute to other people who would be looking to learn from me? Mm -hmm. I think one of the guests on your show, Jeremy Enns, he's had some great tutorials and and combinations of learning style approaches. So he'll have presentations and takeaway materials that are really helpful to refer to after. Um, But I do like how you've also broken out your own podcast topics into shorter video sound bites. And this is so helpful because when people want to drill down into something deeper, they can look at your podcast channel and they can actually see topics that are more, you know, brief, succinctly explained Is that something that you've been doing for a while or did you learn that through trial and error and you realize people really want to get to certain specific ideas and that's going to grow your audience? Yeah, I started doing it in season one. I started with Headliner, which was absolutely insane considering the fact that I was a video podcast from the start. So why I never just used the video (laughs) is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, but this was also pre, you know, transcriptions in Adobe Premiere. So maybe that's what I'll blame it on, which isn't fair. (laughs) But but yeah, so it is something I started from the jump. I think I've gotten better at identifying uh, segments that are more impactful, that are more punchy. Uh, As time has gone on, I've gotten better about packaging those shorter videos for social media platforms. And I think we got into a really good groove of now, like not just packaging them, but also branding them with like our colors and things like that in season three of Honey and Hustle. And that's something that transferred over to Creative Architects. Mm, Nice. And how did you pick tools that would help you do that more efficiently? Um, Working with editors. (laughs) It started with um, Adobe Premiere and like me doing all the manual work in Adobe Premiere. And then when I started working with editors, they're like, oh, there's this tool called Descript and we can search based on the text you give us. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, have fun. Like, <laughs> I love I love Descript. I use it for all my show notes personally. Um, okay. And because we also use Squadcast, it was fantastic when they merged because then we weren't paying for two accounts. So on a side note mm-hmm. to anybody who wants to use either one of those tools, it's great. But yeah, I think that's been one of the most exciting opportunities in podcasting in the last couple of years because we've seen a massive improvement in how people can access their content in different formats. Even though I'm recording in audio, I can now use Descript to go and pick out phrases or entire sentences, uh, paragraphs, and use that for other materials. And that's so much faster. I'm a faster reader. I think many of us are versus listening. So it's much easier to scan through and you can even do a a search for the, for the content you're looking for. Um, just thinking about the, the editors that you've worked with, what are some of the really important or pivotal lessons that you've learned in terms of making better content and reaching your audience in a more effective way? Over-communicate. Over-communicate. <laughs> nice. And I say that not because like editors are incapable by any means, but just like over-communicate. Because once they get going, especially once they have an established flow... Um, it can be hard for them to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, what do they need from me um, to make this not just a good show, but a great show um, and for them and the guests to get value out of it. I think when I first started using editors for Honey and Hustle, I did not always identify clips for them. I just assumed they would be able to 
know what I would want. And that's also not the case. I think um, one issue that we ran into was they assumed that I wanted to be seen as the thought leader. And so they would pick out clips from stuff that I said rather than the guests. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I want the guests to feel like the thought leader. I want them to be at the forefront. Let's use these clips so that their expertise is shown and everything. Um, So that was like one small thing I didn't anticipate running into, but I did. Um, Another thing is... Like sometimes they would put my face in it, even if I wasn't speaking. And I'd be like, why is my face in it? Not realizing that maybe I could try that and people would actually like seeing my face. Mm. So I think it's also just like having the conversation about like what it is I need and what it is they feel like makes a compelling video and how we can kind of come together to agree on that. That's interesting, too, because content editing versus technical editing and producing our different approaches, right? So someone who's listening and editing for, you know, taking out the ums and ahs and and, and smoothing over that audio isn't necessarily going to think the same way when they're looking for clips or highlights. It's a different approach, right? Yeah. And then I'm also, again, being like video forward, I'm like, the ums and ahs make you personal. Like, they make you real. They make you less robotic. Like, those are natural speech patterns for people who are like, naturally thinking and not reading off of a script so (laughs) it didn't bother me and like my editors were the ones that I worked with uh at the end of season three for Honey and Hustle they were like super picky about it and I'm like it's not that big a deal like it's fine like don't waste you know an additional hour on that like I would rather the the script flow better than to worry about like the nitpickiness of how it sounds Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do you identify and define your audience as a creator and I'm asking this with you in mind you've you've had Honey and Hustle now you're working on creative architects, how do you define your audience? How do you think about that when you're creating your episodes? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, when I think about Honey and Hustle and creative architects, what I first think about selfishly is is me. Like, who are the type of people that, you know, I am most drawn to? And what are the type of narratives that I think are most important? Um, and again, that is definitely a biased space to be in. And, uh, that's kind of the point. Like, why create something if you don't have an opinion, if you don't have a unique perspective that you're willing to, to showcase? And, you know, when I think about my approach to creativity, my approach to business, you know, I think about the fact that I am very adamant about sustainable business practices. I am very adamant about businesses and their relationship with communities, not just creative communities, but local communities. Um, I'm very adamant about how businesses treat the people they work with. You know, Um, these are things that I care about. Um, I also am a fan of businesses that aren't purely made for the love of money. So like you will never see an MLM, you'll never see someone who's purely a real estate investor um, who's just trying to flip houses for money or become a land. Like those people are just not going to be on Honey and Hustle. It's just not going to happen. Fair enough. I really want to point out you are quite active in your geographical region, Durham. And I'm curious to know how you connect to the local space and then connect to the global podcasting world. The great thing, of course, about digital tools is we can connect to anybody anywhere. But I think one of the interesting elements in your show and the work that you've done, and that includes Honey and Hustle, is you've made a point to include your local businesses, your local creators, um, but you're broadcasting, obviously, to a global uh, audience. Do you find that there's some unexpected opportunities when you can do that 
while at the same time elevating your own local communities and creators. Yeah, so Honey and Hustle is focused on founders in North Carolina. And it took me to season three to realize that that's what I wanted to focus on. And when I started to think about why that is, it became so much clearer to me. And I think the show direction and premise became so much more clear and the branding and messaging was elevated from that perspective because, you know, North Carolina has been ranked the number one state for business two years in a row. Um, it's the, has this city that is the number one city for black owned businesses, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, and it has, uh, made just such a profound impact on me and my creative career. And so all of those things really influence why I think North Carolina is so special and why I try to give back and be a part of my community as often as I can. Uh, creative Architects is a little bit different in that it is not North Carolina focused. It's not regionally focused. Um, and so hopefully there will be some people outside of the United States on that show as well. We already have had people outside of the United States on the show. And when it comes to like bridging those two worlds, I think it's, for me at least, been effortless. When you are very clear on what it is that you do and who it is that you serve, even as a podcaster, that sounds like such a business phrase, but even as a podcaster, when you're very clear on who your target audience is, um, it gets really easy to articulate that and, and set yourself apart. So when I go to podcast festivals, which I've gone to two this month, and I'm excited to go to another one next month, um, I don't feel out of place. I feel like, yeah, like this is where I'm supposed to be. I feel like there's space for for a show like mine and the shows that I've created. So I think bridging those two worlds really is about just like being present, you know, being in the room physically and digitally. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of digitally, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the communities that might be free or paid and access different types of creators maybe who have access to those different communities. Let's say, you know, someone's listening to this podcast and they don't live in a region that's particularly active with the sort of creators they want to meet. Can you recommend any digital communities that would be a great place to start for creators who want to network and, and meet more like-minded folks? Yeah, I mean, um, Facebook, for all its, you know, hardships, is a really great place to find creative groups and creative meetups. Um, meetup.com is also really great for, like, localized stuff. Um, I found uh, my local outdoor Afro chapter that way. I found um, a local photo video group meetup here in uh, the Carolinas that way. And there, are, and there are more, I think, like, for example, Corey's group, Black Podcasters Association, they have an online group and a Facebook group, as well as a newsletter where you have like more access to community chats and more topic-related chats. So there, there are great ways. I would say definitely start with Facebook. I know it sounds crazy, oh, but Facebook is still it. <laughs> let's stop there for a second. Why, why is that? Because a lot of people have made fun of Facebook as a has-been and, oh, I don't use it. But I am yeah. hearing from more creators that, you know what, it's actually a great resource. Is it and my first assumption is there's still a lot of people with accounts on there, even if they don't go on every day. Is that really it? Or is there other reasons? Has has that platform improved how they connect creators in the last few years? I don't think they've improved, but I do feel like Facebook groups were one of the few things Facebook got right. <laughs> nice. Um, and I can say that, I mean, I, I also joined uh, when I had a Zcam 
which is a Chinese-owned camera company. The Zcam group was incredible. It was moderated really well. People could ask questions without um, a lot of judgment. People could post their work. It was really just like place, you know, if you wanted to sell your camera gear, you could sell it there. But it was just a really fun and organic group and there's so much help and, and things like that. And I think that's what people want, just like ease of access, ease of ways to ask questions in a non-judgmental way, um, ease of ways to get feedback and like direct support for the work that they're doing. Because again, solo creating can be really like lonely. And so like, if you're in a small town, nobody probably cares about this film that you're super excited about, but you can post it online or a snippet of it online and people will, you know, give you feedback and and support you and uplift you and encourage you. And I think another thing that has helped Facebook is, Again, and we're seeing a lot of these remnants kind of carry over into Discord, which I think is another really great place for communities that's growing, is that, you know, you had this one login, you know, for a lot of people, they use their Facebook login to create an Instagram, they're using their Instagram login to create a threads. So the ecosystem around Facebook, I think, is what gives people a lot of hope and a lot of promise. For better or for worse, if they're moderated really well, a Facebook group can be a really great place. That's really promising to hear because we've we've definitely heard our fair share of negative stuff about Facebook, but it's great to hear positive. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the different types of creator-business relationship. I want to step back for a second. You mentioned having a lot of one-off relationships where somebody is maybe the video videographer or the sound editor. How is your thinking changing or evolving around those creator business relationships where maybe you might combine a few functions or you might work with one company, a small company maybe that can provide you all of that? Help paint a picture of what that might look like for creators who want to get support and they want to have business relationships. Um I would say the best thing to do is work together on a project. You know, that's where it all starts. Like, do we work well together, right? Is this something we would feel comfortable and confident offering as a package service for larger projects? Um, an example that I've seen and that I think I will continue to see is people that will have their own separate business. Like I have Rootful Media, that's my filmmaking business. But they will join forces with two or three other people who also have their own freelance business to create a collective. Hmm. So whenever they're pitching for a bigger job, they can say, well, I'm a part of this collective and we do X, Y, Z. And we have a filmmaker, we have a director, we have a DP, we have an audio engineer, we have an audio mixer, we have a video editor. So we have a team of people that come together to create something really powerful. And again, if your local area is very small, like, yeah, this is a hard pill to swallow. That location is going to be a hindrance for something like that, unless you're willing to travel and can do so consistently in a way that makes sense. Um, and so that's, that is like a hindrance of, of, of filmmaking where I I won't say you need to move to LA or New York. I don't think so. But you do kind of need to be in at least an area where, you know, you have a solid network of people. Or else you've got to learn enough skills that can allow you to collaborate remotely, right? So maybe the people who are more advanced with remote collaboration, they might have more skills that enable them to to work with businesses that are in totally other lo- in far locations, um, but they, yeah. they have the technical skills to be able to do that. I don't think I personally have all of those, but I think if you're working with somebody else who has them, it can make a big difference. Maybe talk a little bit about the 
differences between the free and paid communities? You mentioned that you're not really paying to be in a community right now, as I understand it, but are there any paid communities that you would recommend to someone who wanted to pay the extra amount for that? Um, I am hesitant to recommend a paid community because that's somebody else's money. So I would tell you <laughs> okay. what you should and should not put your money towards. What I would say when I did pay for a community, um, it did come with a course. Mm-hmm from someone that I really wanted to learn from. And that is the key. It has to be someone that you really want to learn from and someone who can really be impactful for your journey, not just someone that you like and you want to support. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but liking a designer and paying a designer for a course when I have no interest in becoming a designer makes absolutely no sense for me. Um, I need to learn from someone who is going to teach me how to be a better filmmaker, a better podcaster, a better photographer, a better XYZ. Um, And I I think that would be my main criteria for choosing someone is like, do they do what I do or do they do what I want to do? And are they at a level where they can teach me certain things that I would have a really hard time or really long time learning on my own? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe you can also elaborate a little bit more on how to grow your network in other ways. So you've mentioned growing your network through business owners in your region. What are some other ways that have enhanced your creativity by networking with others and maybe in in ways that aren't obvious? Oh, man. Uh, So I think there's like a law of attraction when it comes to putting yourself out there regularly on social media and sharing your work, even if you feel like only two people are looking at it. I think that's very important. And it is a long game. Let's be clear about that. But I think if you're intentional and you are persistent and you are consistent, then it works really well. I mean, it works like a charm because the more you put yourself out there, at least in my experience, the more you learn from other people who are also putting themselves out there and doing it really well. Um, If you're showing up every day, there's a chance there's somebody else who's showing up every day. And so um, learning how to get better at telling your story, learning how to get better at saying your brand message five different ways, Um, learning how to get better at packaging your work for different platforms, so YouTube, social media, um, maybe even your portfolio. I think that's also, it all kind of comes together to build a momentum that is like establishing who you are in the digital space. And I think that as we are seeing a lot on Twitter and even LinkedIn, people are heralding how creating online consistently has worked so well for them. And I, I think there is something to that. I think there is um, something that bridges the gap between like, well, I have a lack of resources or a lack of access due to where I live. And now it's just like, if I have an internet connection, that kind of, um, in many ways, depending on what you do, can bridge that gap of access for you fairly quickly if you're willing to put in a little bit of sweat equity. Definitely. And this is a more personal note for me, but I've been thinking a lot about YouTube. And in a recent podcast, you talked a lot about the opportunities there and how Google is retiring their podcast platform. And that's been in the news for a while. But a lot of people are really excited to see the transition for podcasts to YouTube. So, for example, podcasts like this one would be automatically streaming on YouTube um, in theory. And right now it doesn't. Now, of course, the great thing about YouTube is the algorithm tends to surface content, in my opinion, and in many others, in a more efficient um, or intuitive way, let's say. So what I've noticed on some platforms like Spotify and Apple, I don't always find the best content 
just through what it suggests to me, through what the platform suggests. But going back to this idea that you were talking about, about thinking about how to create for different platforms, how to package differently, how to, you know, say your message differently. What do you think creators can do to get themselves in the right frame of mind to try something new? Like, let's say you're an audio podcaster like me, and you want to transition to YouTube, but you're intimidated by video because the freedom of not being on camera has given you a certain amount of of, of creative expression. Um, that's just a personal example, but I'm, I'm sure others have uh, can relate or they might have other examples. Help me think through that based on all of your experience, Angela. Like you have so much great experience with these different mediums. How do I think through as a creator, you know, I want to try something. Is it just a matter of just try it and do maybe a limited edition number of episodes? Or do you think there should be a more elaborate strategy to commit to, you know, doing YouTube video podcast episodes for at least six months? Yeah, when it comes to testing out new platforms to see if they're going to be a good fit for you or your audience, I think like maybe not putting too much pressure on yourself is the best way to get over the hurdles of like the fear of what's going to happen <laughs> when you put something out. Um, at least that was my experience with like TikTok and Instagram reels and threads. It's just like you have to lower the barrier to entry and just accept out of the gate. This is not going to be the best thing you ever post on this platform, you know, but going through the motions, at least, you know, for your first couple of posts is really just about learning how the platform works, right? It's just like, how does an upload work? How long does it take? Um, what information do I need to give it that would help it be found in the search? How can I package that with, you know, either a cover image on TikTok or Instagram Reels or a thumbnail? Like, how long does it take me to design a thumbnail? How does um, making a thumbnail work for us? Like, what is the design style that we like and we want to experiment with? So you're adding all these different elements of, of creativity when you're learning a new platform. And I think part of it is just like, the learning experience first and foremost, seeing what works, seeing what you like, seeing what you don't like, seeing where you can improve and seeing if you're willing to put in the extra effort to make it something that's better as time goes on. Um, at least for me, like I always give something, I would say YouTube is a little bit different, but um, for TikTok and Reels, so like shorts content, I at least give it like 30 days. You just kind of see what happens. Um, but YouTube, I would definitely say like maybe start with like one video every two weeks, one video a month, like decrease that pressure because there's also the learning curve of editing something, right? So like I would say like if you're interested in a new platform, like give yourself time to learn. Give yourself time to be bad and accept <laughs> that it's going to be bad. And like that's literally okay because Two people are watching and you have time to improve. And um, it's something that at the end of the day, if you want to commit to video, if you understand that video is something that you need for discoverability or that you want or that your audience wants, it is about that long-term commitment to like getting better 1% every video or getting better 1% with every iteration, just like you would a podcast. I like that. I think it's going back to that idea of being willing to fail and being and curious, curiosity and tapping into that versus fear and, you know, allowing yourself and your curiosity to get the better of you and just experiment versus trying to be perfect right out of the gate. Um, related to this, I've personally found ChatGPT to be a wonderful tool to get ideas on a screen um, so that I'm not looking at a blank screen so that I have something to react to. 
But AI and the evolution of tools and strategy is a hot topic right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts about where you see things going as far as AI-assisted or generative AI-assisted tools that allow creators to do more with what, what they have, or maybe more on their own, maybe more with collaborators. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think AI is going to, like most technology, reach a plateau of like what we expect from it and what it's capable of. Um, which is not a bad thing. I think automation in some way, shape, or form has been around for years at this point. We're just calling what I would consider to be like a call and response form of AI to be a little bit more enhanced now where like I can give it a prompt and it can say something back to me versus, you know, generative fill in Photoshop, which has been around forever. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's just like a step up in in the capability of, of what AI can do for you personally. I think in many ways it has been helpful. Like, for example, I use a tool called Headliner. Yeah, I use that To too. help me write my titles yeah. for, like, my podcasts and YouTube videos. And now it has a section for AI where I can, like, it'll give me suggested questions that I can prompt AI to answer. Like, how can I improve this headline? How can I write this better? Um, stuff like that. I think that's great. Um, does it replace you having to put something in the search bar to begin with? No, and I don't think it ever will. And that's not the point. So I, I think that AI will improve our creativity and our ability to package things better and to write better, which I think is a huge, huge leap. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to learn how to write better. Um, but I don't know if I see it being this like end all be all to creativity because the ideas and the human element of creativity still has to come from the person. So yeah. it can't make you, I don't know how to say this nicely, but it can't replace for creativity. Like it just can't. One thing I'm surprised by is how AI helps me brainstorm. So I could say, help me come up with a concept for a video contest, ask me questions and, and, and actually get chat GPT to ask you questions to think through. Another example is you could say, I want to start a small business. It's in a town of 1500 people. Help me come up with some ideas. So this is, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a brainstorm companion or partner. And I think that's really exciting because you don't always have access to people in the moment. Um, and again, it's it's a starting point. I don't think we're anywhere near saying that everything AI generated on its own is going to compete with human creativity, but I see it as a really integral partner in terms of what we can achieve together. And I've been enjoying that and having fun with that. Um, and certainly with Descript, since I started using that or since we started using that for this podcast, Seeing the improvements with um, the voice to text and and how the transcript worked, that has impressed me quite a lot and, and being able to use that. So I am excited. Are there any tools or new platforms that are coming out, whether it's focused on generative AI or not, that you're excited about or that you're you're eager to learn more about? Yes. Capsule. Um, it's a short form video editor and its claim to fame isn't necessarily that um, it's going to create AI clips for you, but that it helps you create branded clips better and faster, which I think is incredible through like uh, branded clips and, and packaging them for social. And I think that it kind of takes Descript and puts it on steroids. It is 
more expensive than Descript as of right now because they just launched. But that's a tool that I'm excited to see, like the pricing and packaging structure kind of level out for the market and for people to start using a little bit more. I think it's going to be a great high quality short form video editor. I've also been using Swell AI a lot. It's kind of like Capshow, but it's um you can, you know, sync it to your YouTube uh, channel, sync it to your podcast RSS feed, and it can come up with like blog posts. It can extract quotes. It can write social posts for you. I've prompted it to give me like the top five takeaways from episodes before. So I love putting those in blog posts. Um, it can write show notes for you. I don't use AI to write my show notes. Um, I prefer to do that and package that because that's to me a part of the packaging, the description of the show. Um, so that's something that you can use it for if you'd like. Um, and I'm sure there's more stuff that I haven't even tried with it. And last but not least, the one that I definitely have been loving a lot is actually Notion AI. I've never directly paid for ChatGPT, but I do believe that Notion AI is based on ChatGPT. And um, I'm able to give it prompts. I have tried brainstorming with Notion AI and I have not yet used any of the things I've brainstormed it for, but I have an idea. Like I have ideas for for things and I do like it for that, just a kind of a simple call and response. So um, I, and I love Notion for organization. So it's been great for me to have that and it's well worth the extra $10 a month that I pay. So nice. Yeah, nice. absolutely. I'm curious as well, you know what it's like to start a podcast in the pandemic. Actually, we started our first podcast in February of 2020, so right before things really got shut down. So definitely pandemic podcast is an experience I can relate to. But in the beginning, so much of what you're learning is the technical side and, you know, how do I speak properly into the microphone or angle this camera just right? But once you get those things down, it's not as central to your focus. You you're focused on other things. Do you think you're having more fun now as a creator because you've got a certain handle on all these technical elements? And what are you really passionate about? Like what what makes you excited to try something new? Just the act of trying something new. So not only was I pan- a pandemic podcaster, but I was one of the few, I would say in my opinion, indie video podcasters, right? So I think I was ahead of the disruption of video and podcasting and people were pissed. Okay. <laughs> They've been pissed ever since I've been a podcaster because <laughs> there are very there have been people on Twitter that have very directly said, like, this is not a podcast. Like this is a talk show. Oh. Like you can't call yourself a podcaster and, you know, why should I incorporate video into your, your my podcast? I'm not saying you should. <laughs> I'm just saying that I am, okay? <laughs> And so I think from the very beginning, coming into a space that wasn't always the most welcoming, if we're being honest, Mm. um, now what makes it fun for me is yes, like I feel more comfortable as like a host and as a producer. And what excites me going forward about trying new things, which I have a lot of new things coming up, I'm very excited about, um, is pushing the boundaries of what it means to be a podcaster and what it means to create podcast content, specifically video podcast content, I hope that I have three times as many people mad at me because the reality (laughs) is everything that I'm doing as a video podcaster, they could be doing as an audio only podcaster. They're just not. Tell me, what are some examples like where people are angry and you're like, you could do that? 
Yeah. Um, so like how I structure my show as a video podcaster to match the audio. Um, and it has like a teaser section. It has the intro to the show. And then I introduce the guest and then we get into the interview. And then I have a specific ad segment where I'll read a host read ad for an affiliate link or some of one of my products or something I have coming up. And then I'll have a specific outro that invites people to like subscribe, like all that good stuff. And people are like, um, I don't really edit. And it's like, well, that's on you. Mm-hmm. You could put in the time. You could put in the extra 30 minutes to an hour to make it a great show versus just something you recorded on your phone and uploaded and are confused as to why people don't want to listen. That's not my fault. <laughs> no. Like, let's be clear, you know? Or even putting the time into a dedicated trailer, or a dedicated intro for your show that explains to people what they're watching. It's not my fault you haven't done that. No. It's not my fault that whatever you did create is not compelling. You could have put the extra time to add a little royalty-free music. There's plenty of royalty-free music that is easy and accessible. Like, some things really aren't that hard, but people just aren't putting in that extra effort. And then now you're saying, I have to show up on camera. I really don't want to show up on camera. And that's how people are going to get in touch with my personality. I'm not saying that. But I'm also saying if you're recording it on Squadcast or Riverside, how hard is it to record the video? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and edit it just as you would your audio show, but you don't edit. So that's also like, you know what I mean? It's like this recurring theme of people who are less like confused as to why their show isn't taking off and then blaming the easiest thing to blame, which is people who are doing something different. And so, again, if I don't have three times as many people mad at me in 2024, I have not done my job as a video podcaster. I have not pushed the boundaries of what it means to be a podcaster and to create something compelling that people want to watch. Mm, That's great. And I totally agree with the editing perspective. I think there's a really strange point of view. I don't quite understand it. I try. But there's there's some people who feel like if you edit it, it's somehow insincere or it's not accurate or authentic. It's like, no, no, you wouldn't just randomly point your camera at any object and say, you know, this is a piece of art. Although I actually have met somebody who says that and, you know, that's a whole other story. But I think it's all about the audience. You know, who are your audience? What do they want to hear? And are you going to be respecting them? Because I feel it's disrespectful to just share raw audio and expect your audience to filter out whatever it is you're hoping that they're going to filter out. And that's a learning process. I think editing is a learning process and you learn over time what people like to hear. But I completely agree that, you know, it's not your fault if if somebody's complaining that, you know, they didn't want to edit and no one's listening. But I think the video perspective is something I want to experiment with more. I know I've shared with you when we weren't recording that what's made me hesitate is more as a woman creator, just being subject to comments about our appearance. Um, it, it's not it's not fun. And that's maybe what's made me hesitate a bit around creating video. But I'm seeing more and more creators who... They don't seem to be as bothered by that. They don't seem to be as subject to that. And I think maybe that goes in line with what you were saying earlier, Angela, around how podcasting as a community has expanded so much more. It isn't just the stereotypical man behind a microphone anymore. And I think there's more room for creators. And and frankly, I feel like I've been drawn more towards YouTube lately, and I'm listening to a lot more you know, podcasts, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here because, yeah, there are real purists 
who who'd say that that's not a podcast because podcasts were originally audio. It's a podcast. So I know I've gone on a bit of a tangent there, but I was kind of excited when you were expressing yourself and 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 wanting to contribute there as well. But tell me more about what you're excited about and and what you want to do next and what you want to grow next. You you have so many great ideas. Um, you've expressed a lot of enthusiasm for learning, for for trying out new things. Tell us more about what's next for you. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, because this leads into the question, is um, this element of people watching things on YouTube, like long form videos. Um, one of the biggest, like, harshest things I think people have tried to say to me to like hurt my feelings or whatever is I've had people sometimes repeatedly say I will never watch a video podcast I will only listen and because they don't watch it it's not valid or they wouldn't watch it it's not valid and they wouldn't create it and sometimes I've asked like have you asked your audience that they would watch it if you added a video component and for some reason I get crickets so um what I'm excited for in 2024 I'm excited to have the opportunity to do some live recordings. I would love to do a live recording or two or five in front of an audience. I think that is going to be really, really fun. And again, there's going to be some people I know that are probably going to comment and say, well, that's a talk show. That's not a podcast. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. It's actually both. And that's okay. Um, And there are plenty of audio only podcasts that have done live shows. So I'm not the first and I won't be the last. Um, and I think that if you truly care about your audience, you would find ways to incorporate them into the show and create a unique experience for them. And I think that's something that I want to explore. It scares the crap out of me to be live <laughs> because then you can see my mistakes in real time. <laughs> but that is something I'm excited for. And I think too, just as a visual creator, there's something about set design that really draws me into video podcasts. And the cinematography of capturing set design in a long-form conversation or interview in an engaging way. I mean, Oprah Winfrey has done this in an incredible way. She's like the example, right? Zane Lowe on Apple Music does this extremely well. I mean, the editing on those video interviews is immaculate. And I want to bring something like that experience to a live show and a live recording. And I think that is something that I'm super excited about. If I had to name one thing, I can't give away all the goodies, but that would be top of my list. I Nice. Is there anything else you'd like to mention as far as creative architects or or what you'd like people to, to check out next? Um, no, if you haven't watched or listened to Creative Architects, highly encourage you to catch up on that. We are still on season one, so super catch up before we hit season two. And I'm currently filming for season four of Honey and Hustle. So that will be out in 2024. So super excited for both of those shows. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Angela. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. you love access ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas. Access Ideas.